0: Nighttime on still waters. This is NB five zero six eight one two, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twelfth of December, Saturday. Icy Theotham tracks the fearless dark and touches earth with a scatter of mercurial light. As silent as owls' wings, as swift as falling angels, the stars fall. Frosted crystal beneath our feet and clouded breath, we walk on in wonder. Welcome back to the Narrowboat, Erica, and it's lovely to have you with me again. Well, the barometer's been swinging up and down these last couple of days. Well, actually, the, the last month, and we've had some fairly cold nights. About minus three is the, the lowest it's got, but the last couple of days has been unseasonably warm and mild. And I was reading Miles Hadfield's rather eccentric and idiosyncratic, but nonetheless, rather wonderful, The English Almanac, published in 1950. And in his section on the weather for December, he writes, December is usually the dullest and wettest month of the year. Seldom is it the coldest. Except in the north and on high ground, little snow falls. Green Christmases seem to be much more frequent than seasonable ones. He then goes on to note that Buchan has his third and final warm spell from the 3rd to the 14th of December. Now Hadfield is a great believer in Buchan and his warm spells. I've looked them up in more serious meteorological books and apparently there's absolutely no statistical evidence to support them. Um, But nonetheless, whenever we have an unseasonably warm spell and I just open Miles Hadfield, I note that it falls within one of Buchan's Um, fabled warm spells or warm periods. So I think if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. So welcome back. And I'd just like to thank those of you who have been contacting me. Um, It's lovely to hear from you And, and especially give a thanks, a very warm thank you to those who have been spreading the word about. Nighttime on still waters podcast um, particularly on twitter uh, the nb wannabes and also the the narrowboat on a whim and and i just want to say a, a, a hi to their wonderful and gorgeous dog bella also over on instagram thank you to op hoop von Ziegen. i hope i've pronounced that right It's refurbishing a magnificent 1907 Dutch barge over in Bristol. And thank you again for uh, taking the time just to spread the word about this podcast. And while I'm here thanking people and saying hi, I'd like to have a special height and a thank you to Meg over on Facebook for posting a lovely link to the Nightwalk episode. I've known Meg for quite some time now and she's part of a, a lovely community on MySpace, where I first began to test the waters of writing creatively and seeing if I could find a voice, or actually even if I had a voice. And I owe so much to that eclectic, patient, and unfailingly supportive community. So, hi Meg, and it's great to see you still writing and taking such beautiful photographs. Publishing and publicising these podcasts or anything creatively is still, for me, the thing that I find the hardest to do. And so I'm generally grateful to all of you who have taken the time to tell others about these episodes. Thank you. This morning, a sagging, pre-dawn, blotting paper-type sky was greeted by the rooks, as always. It was the type of light that even the kingfisher in its looping glide from boat to boat has failed to be ignited as that blue spark or flame. I always look forward to the rooks' gathering, watching out for their pre-dawn patrols, a jackdaws hustling and jacking like unruly adolescents and I'm always intrigued by the relationships that jackdaws have with rooks it seems to be quite easy and companionable they gather in great wheeling calling flocks circling around calling out to each other I recorded this a few weeks back And it happens just before the sun breaks the night. Different roosts also seem to join them. And then on some hidden signal, they all sweep off across the sky together like blown ragged leaves. I've watched this all over the country. It's not just just here. I can remember standing on Banbury Station platform on one very cold but clear winter's morning. And first one or two rooks appeared and started wheeling around, calling. And then, as I just waited on the station platform, more and more joined them from all points of the compass. And it's this connection that makes me feel like I'm home. It was only after I encountered the different rook colonies surrounding the village where we used to live that and I got to know their boundaries and how they interact, the seasonal pull on their behaviours, did I begin to feel at home. I know rooks are called parliaments, but for some reason I get cantankerous and contrarian when it comes to rooks. We'd been here for a few weeks when Penny, Donna and I were walking in the field above our moorings. And the late September sun was warm. Pillowed cumulus embroidered a sky that so blue it must have been painted by a six-year-old deity. And a warm wind threw itself across the meadows, making the trees dance. And as we walked down back towards the canal, Three oaks sat in a depression, soaring above them, wheeling, the rooks played in the erratic air currents with their characteristic mastery and skill, and from that point I no longer felt like a visitor, I was home. This autumn and winter, we'd always planned not to move that much. Jobs on and off the boat dictated that we would be, to a certain extent, quite static. However, lockdown and Covid has meant that travel we've travelled even less than we'd anticipated. In fact, I've not seen one boat pass by in well over a month now. However, being stationary does have its upsides and has meant that I have got to know the little communities that that live here. There's the the rooks, of course, the jackdaws and magpies, and there's even a couple of raven. There's the dunnocks and the wagtails and the twittering masses that make the hedges tremble and shake. And there's also the wren that lives in the young osiers by the gate. And we have a pair of kingfishers that regularly visit, and also the daily visit from a cormorant. And there's the moorhens, fussy and fidgety, one minute clucking away together, grubbing grass, and the next shrieking and chasing each other around like furious hens. And there's the coot, single and solitary, but a real bruiser and a battler. And even in the midst of the scuffling uh ducks is there in fact quite often i can hear him or her yelling at me uh that it's time to give get the food out and there's the resident ducks now joined by those who are over a wintering. and there's complex squabbles and negotiations there's unwritten rules of who's accepted and who's not Of course, the little ducklings, they, uh, from the twelve, only two have survived, but even that is something. They are now almost too difficult to tell apart from the other adult ducks until they sleep. And you can quite often see them still nuzzled up together as little feathered balls and mothers sitting contentedly beside them. And I'm pleased for her, she's done well. When we came there, it was just one lone swan, a young adolescent, and he disappeared for about a month or so. And we now have a pair. I'm not sure if one of them is the old original who's gone to find a mate. Polly doesn't think so uh, and she should know because waterfowl cluster around her boat and she seems to have a very good relationship with them actually I don't think her name's Polly um I kind of got to know of her on Instagram she posts some really beautiful pictures there and as she actually, actually funny enough as she was posting them I began to think this looked really familiar and then realized that she's moored just a few boats up from us um but the name's kind of stuck in my head. Um, and so, Polly, I'm sorry, you know, I know you're not probably not really called Polly, but that was the name that I kind of knew you via. Um, so <laughs> the name stuck. Well, anyway, I love the way she talks to the swans. It's with a gentle respect. And I get the feeling that swans don't often experience that with human interactions, which are so often characterised by either aggression or very hurried, jerky movements. Even kind ones, where people offer food, tend to be the food thrown at them from a distance, jabbing gestures of the hand. And I know they have a bad reputation for aggression and violence, which is actually undeserved. Their size also, I guess, makes them makes people wary of them it doesn't help that the characteristic pecking movement so natural to so many birds when eating is accentuated and made even more threatening when accompanied with a long snake-like neck. It's too unpredictable, too redolent of a striking serpent. But I've noticed a placid gentleness about them that puts me in mind of old Labrador dogs the head movements, betraying the de-escalation signals that all species seem to know and to read. I am no threat. I mean no harm. You have nothing to worry about. And I also love their little noises that they make, the the snortles and the clucks and the, the blowing, communicating with each other, perhaps trying to communicate with Others as well. Fran Pike from the Floating Our Boat vlog and podcasts, who I mentioned a few episodes back, funnily enough, got in contact with me just just a, just a, 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 just today, a and was writing about the no- the noises that she loves at night around the canal, and one of them was the sound of swans flying at night. Swans make a lot of sound. Mute swan is a misnomer. And in fact, Buzowski in his book Fauna Britannica notes that it was only in 1785 that the mute swan came to be called mute swan. Before that, it was just the tame swan. Unfortunately, he doesn't give us the reason why the name was changed. But he also notes that it's an oxymoron inasmuch as as swan is derived from the Old English, meaning sound. Uh, And so initially the bird was associated with sound, so mute swan um, seems to be an internal contradiction there. There seems to be something rather Christmassy about swans. Perhaps it's the seven swans are swimming, or perhaps it's the tales of feasts that comprised of swans as the head dish for the kings of old. But swans seem to feature in old cookbooks and folklore and myth in equal measure. The Greek gods rode in chariots driven by swans. And perhaps it's fitting, therefore, that it became also the Feast of Monarchs, protected from the dishes of the peasants, first by folklore and myth about how unlucky it was to kill a swan and then by royal command and law. And there's something unworldly and exotic about them. An urban myth claim that they were not native, but they were introduced. However, zoarchaeological evidence finds that swan bones in Iron Age Sites round Glastonbury have quashed that. And these serpentine meringues that glide the ruffled waters so effortlessly are as British as you can get it. Although that also begs a lot more questions. These least anthropomorphic of birds has so much anthropomorphism lavished upon them. Love. Arrogance grief, heartbreak. Even this year, there was a couple of posts on Twitter about a a swan dying of heartbreak. Even vanity. Although, I rather like the comments made by Richard Jefferies in his quirky little story, Wood Magic, where the protagonist, a young child called Beavis, is talking to a reed beside the brook and the, the reed is telling beavis all the the different animals and birds that come to the brook and in it richard jeffries presents the swan in a very different light and at this point the reed is telling beavis about the birds which do not come to the brook and it says the swan does not come either Unless the brook is muddy after a storm, the swan is so tired of seeing himself in the water that he quite hates it, and that is the reason he holds his neck so high, that he may not see more of himself than he can help. It's a rather lovely challenge and pushback against the depiction of the swan as vain to one... That is humble. Myths, and particularly the more recent ones, the ones that come from the Romantic period or certainly have been embellished by the Romantic period, and to the more recent ones, tend to be desperately sad and touch on something melancholic about them. And watching our pair circling one another neck bowing and then pushing off together across the water it's difficult not to feel that same sort of melancholia the the soulfulness captured so beautifully in W.B. Yeats's poem The Wild Swan of Cool the haunting tug of the passing years of the familiar amid the increasingly unfamiliar as Heraclitus argued, the waters at whose edge we stand are not the same ones that we once knew. And yet, it's captured in that bellbeat of their wings, as Yeats puts it. There is something reassuring about their tranquility, their unhurried presence, Of the swan i was going to finish by reading you the wild swans of cool but i've decided to finish with perhaps a, a less familiar poem and it's written by one of my most favorite poets my favorite poet changes with the weather um but She's always within the top three, and that's Mary Oliver. And she's written a couple of poems that entitled The Swan. Um, and I want to finish with this one because I think it sums up... It also touches on the theme of night, um, but it also sums up that interaction that we feel and the implicit challenge of a swan in looking at our own lives. The Swan by Mary Oliver Did you see it, drifting, all night, on the black river? Did you see it in the morning, rising into the silvery air? An armful of white blossoms, a perfect commotion of silk, and linen as it leaned into the bondage of its wings, a snowbank, a bank of lilies, biting the air with its black beak. Did you hear it? Fluting and whistling, a shrill dark music, like the rain pelting the trees, like a waterfall knifing down the black ledges. And did you see it? Finally, just under the clouds, a white cross streaming across the sky, its feet like black leaves, its wings like the stretching light of the river. And did you feel it in your heart? How it pertained to everything. And have you too finally figured out what beauty is for? And have you changed your life. As the rain begins to fall again, this is NB 506812 signing off and wishing you a very, very good night. Temperature outside 0.3 degrees Temperature inside 24 degrees Humidity, 94%. Dew point, 0.9 degrees. Wind direction, east. Wind strength, 4 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1002.4, rising. Precipitation, Two millimeters. Moon phase four point two per cent, waning crescent. Day length seven hours forty eight minutes. Sunset fifteen fifty four. Sky casting eight oh eight.